Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter. Uh, I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We're learning together to walk as Christians in the age of fulfillment. And let's begin with the word of prayer. Father, we seek and love you and, and need you. We, we're so grateful you loved us so much. You gave us your only human son, your only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who lived like uh, we couldn't and died like we wouldn't uh, so that we could live. Uh, eternally with you. We're grateful that we uh, are seeking him and have that propensity in our lives. And uh, just pray for uh, Wendy and Seth and Kathy Maggs as they try to keep the show going. And for those people who are seeking sons and daughters uh, and otherwise, in Jesus' name, amen. We will get to your emails and comments in just a minute. If you'd like to call in, feel free. I'm sure Seth will post some kind of uh, phone number up there for you to to uh, check out. Most of you know that Mary and I have three daughters and we're very close to them, each of them. Uh, they all have experienced life as adults in uh, some different ways and their insights and their impact on me, um, it, they're profound. They help me grow as a man and they help me grow as a Christian and we have a lot of dialogue and, and talk. Our youngest uh, daughter Delaney went to a four-year Christian university uh, for her undergrad in kinesiology, and uh, that experience was a challenge due to the culture of the school, which was highly religious and very legalistic. And uh, she was kind of new to Christian. Well, not new to Christianity. She was uh, kind of in it in high school, but the whole structure of the school was was kind of overwhelming for her, and she had a hard time kind of overlooking some of the institutional hypocrisy. So uh, she went uh, for a graduate program in a uh, non-Christian school and uh, graduated last month with a master's in architecture and a grueling experience relative to uh, academic demands. But what made the experience particularly strenuous for her personally was that in her community of students and uh, professors with whom she was constantly engaged with in that kind of program, uh, there was an overwhelming, even a constant focus on what seemed like to her uh, the Christian ethic. I mean, from professors and from students when they're presenting projects and they're talking about architecture, uh, from the mouth of these people who really couldn't care less about God and Jesus, there was this constant flow of rhetoric about love and equality and consideration and humility, uh, essentially the golden rule. And it, I mean, it was overabundant. Um, it surprised Delaney how, quote unquote, moral the faculty and student body spoke and sounded relative to the philosophy of life and even the act of architecture. But what troubled her, uh, and I mean, it troubled her from the get go all the way for three full years, uh, was that in the midst of these profound postulations on love and equality, many person-to-person -person interactions uh, evidence the opposite of love and the, uh, the opposite of compassion and the opposite of mercy. In fact, some of the biggest proponents of love and humility and equity turned out to be some of the least loving, fair-minded people that she came to know. And while the general philosophy, even the philosophy of architecture, 
literally revolved around concepts intrinsic to the Christian faith, when individuals related to other individuals, those ideals went right out the window uh, in many or even most cases. And that was really messing with her mind. She's like, we have to, we have to include equity and humility and love into the very structures that we're talking about creating uh, because it's so paramount and important, but on an individual basis, people are, are mean to each other and gossiping and cutting each other's throats. So um, this is all headed somewhere, so hang with me as I'm going to follow up on some of the comments from last week's show where I discussed George Floyd being killed by a Minnesota police officer. Um, in doing this, or I'm doing this because the conversations I had with Delaney and her astute observations, um, which have been hard won over seven years in academia, have had a, an effect on me and a profound effect as a Christian. Uh, so I represent a lot of people uh, out there in a certain age and certain mindset, you know. Uh, when I sit with them casually in, in coffee houses or, or there's a general tone and attitude shared by men like me. It, we're sort of rigid. I'm almost 60. And you can be a little crotchety, if you will. I mean, we have our ideas, damn it. And we know what we think. And when you enter this age of, of uh, gray crotchety, crotchetiness, you, you, you don't give up. You've kind of established what you know and think. And um, I suggest that regardless of age, there's always room to improve and grow as, in our lives as Christians. As Christians, I'm talking about. And when it comes to perspectives, people my age, the perspectives we started to create 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago, and are still clinging to, sometimes a change of course, a change of perspective is not a bad thing if change is warranted. Many of us probably remember sitting with our great-grandparents or our grandparents or even our parents and hearing some of their views about people and races and places and knowing in our hearts when we would hear them that um, they could use a tune-up in their perspective. It wouldn't hurt Grandpa Jones to have a tune-up on what he is saying right now. You know, it's, it's not popular and it's not easy, but even when we were younger, when we heard older people in their ways, we kind of said, wow, man, is there something that might change there? So the tune-up I'm gonna talk about right now is related to what's happening to, in the country maybe the world, on race and prejudice and the faith we call Christianity. The way I have tried to see people in this world, generally speaking, has been, you know, in the vast collective. When I look at the, the vast collective of people, I have always say it's based on merit. Everything's based on merit. You know, when I'm talking about the cultures and people and nations of the world. It's all based on merit. In other words, I've always established my opinions of people or people groups 
that I don't know personally understand. When I'm looking at a people group that I don't know personally, I base it on what they do and how they contribute to the betterment of society. And in reality, this view is pretty damn hardcore. Uh, not too Christian. It really isn't too Christian. And I've come face to face with the reality of these past few weeks in these conversations with Delaney, who pointed out that sometimes this view, though it sounds kind of fair, it's meritorious, comes across as cold and without compassion, and that it ironically conflicts in her mind and her estimation of how I am with individuals that I know. So she suggested that I might try and introduce compassion I have for individuals who I personally know and love and serve and work with and, and whatever into the conversation I have about groups in the world before jumping out and talking about merit and about uh, their culture and everything being uh, a meritocracy. So quite frankly, when it comes to individual people, that I know, love, serve personally, merit doesn't mean anything to me. It's really amazing. I don't care anybody that I know personally, what they've merited, what their demerits are, what their races, gender, proclivities. I don't care about any of it. And that's an absolute truth. I just love the people and I want to love them with compassion and mercy. And those are the primary factors that are present. And my daughters have seen that uh, because of Christ in me, not because of me. They've seen the other side. Yet for some reason, when the conversation shifts to the world and the peoples and cultures in it, my overall assessment of them in terms of their quality and their value and their purpose shifts it moves and the compassion love and mercy are the last thing to enter in that conversation it it was stunning when i saw this in myself and it's true so if you haven't seen or noticed this already there exists or existed hopefully a disconnect in my thinking because on the one hand when dealing with individuals i know and love the christian mindset is present and active but on the other hand, when assessing the world at large, I sort of take on this callous, capitalistic, pull yourself up by your damn bootstraps, get up and prove yourself and stop whining attitude. And, and there is a conflict there. Why does that exist in me? I wondered that I can be Jesus, you know, of course I can't be him perfectly, but I can try to be Jesus with individuals of every climb. But when it comes to groups and cultures that I don't know, I have another completely rigid, callous, even cold demeanor toward them. All this came out uh, in my mind as I dialogued with my daughter about race last week. She had watched the show we did, and she pointed out that she thought the content was good enough, but compassion was somehow lacking, and she couldn't fully put her finger on why. And that opened up the dialogue. I, I watched it, Dad, but 
I couldn't really get what was lacking in terms of compassion and why it was there. And so we talked and we argued and we bantered back and forth openly, honestly, in love. And it became revelatory to me, her old man. See, in the end, I came to see that perhaps the reason that compassion for groups and cultures and races and genders and lifestyles does not readily manifest itself in me is because when it comes to people and groups I don't know personally, it's been very convenient for me not to really give a damn about any of their plight. It's honest. I haven't cared one bit about the plight of any group. Not at all. I haven't cared about their poverty. I haven't cared about their race. I haven't cared about anything that has, that has to do with their difficulties of being a human being in this world. It wasn't convenient. In other words, if they're not in my backyard, and if it's not something I need to deal with directly, you know, out of Christian love for somebody in need, who I know, or an individual in my path, I've conveniently allowed myself not to give a shit about the plight of black people. I have not cared one ounce in my life about the plight of the of the black man or woman. That's a straight up assessment right out of my heart. And or other ethnicities or other unique people groups. Really. Instead, I shrouded my heart, my Christian heart, in life is hard, we all have setbacks, we all have difficulties and trials, people need to grow up, get over it and make their way. That's that pull yourself up by your bootstrap mentality. But I don't have that with other people who I know. I have it with people I don't. Perhaps this is something in your life too. I could earn fairly high remarks at times on how I deal with individuals, uh, that I'm treating them with love and everything else. no matter their gender, color, lifestyle, and that's a good place to start, no problem. But revision is needed in my long-held world views and opinions of people I don't know. I wanna make a case for why this is important. Delaney, when I told her that I see the, ter- the world in terms of merit, asked, how do you define the merits? It's a great question. How do you define the merits? I said, you know, have they merited valuations or have they earned demerits? You know, just based on something simple like that. I don't think I used the word demerits with her, but but as I said that, I realized something that was lacking in me and my assessment of the world and that I needed to consider I needed to consider incorporating into my view, the same things I had incorporated into my view of individuals, like compassion and mercy and patience and long-suffering toward them rather than just cold, hard facts and statistics about accomplishments or failures. Delaney's point was that I might also initially include compassionate understanding of people groups 
who have had less opportunity than myself when they have tried their hand at successful living. She wasn't recommending this by way of making excuses for anybody. And this is not a way to say, oh, no, you know, excuse. Not that at all. But to compassionately, compassionately acknowledge that some people, some people groups, face a really tough go at this thing called life. A tougher go than others. I've never let myself think it. Right out of the gate, right out of the gate, there is a difficulty. Uh, Hanging up the phone, I I realized that from my own upbringing and environment, I had created a view of the world population selfishly. I didn't have an ounce of care for anyone who entered the world socially, mentally, physically or racially different than myself. If they were different from me, in fact, I have to admit, and I've admitted this before on the show, I was taught in my youth to see other culture, other cultures, races, and people groups as inferior to mine. Inferior. And referred to them with pejoratives like lesbos and fags and beaners and kikes and chink and, uh, and uh, chinks and Polacks, and of course, the forbidden N-word, common out of my mouth growing up in Southern California. Admittedly, I do see people who rise up out of those communities and accomplish things as better, having overcome obstacles like race and gender and poverty and culture and lifestyle, but I did not allow myself to compassionately see or realize how hard life could be for some most or perhaps all in this world. Have you allowed yourself to do that? If you haven't, try it. Because it opens some stuff up that's pretty remarkable. In my trip to Sri Lanka, which I described in a show called Hear Me Out Part Part 1 at the beginning of this uh, year, I think, I began to see the disparity. And, be, and becoming a pastor, the vision began to broaden and, and some good deep roots started to take place in my individual interactions with people, truly, from the heart. But the fact of the matter is, even till last week, I've never really let any compassion or real love enter my heart for people of color, for the plight of women, or for disabled people at large. Didn't care. Worse yet, I didn't really see them at all. I didn't care about them on a world scope at all. And here I am for years talking about what it means to be a Christian. And I didn't see and didn't care to see that other groups suffer in ways that I can't imagine. They really do. I know that many of you, you're probably thinking, what an idiot. Isn't that apparent to you? No, it was not apparent to me. I made a little place for them to be in my mindset. 
and it allowed me to live. And um, of course, I don't apologize for trying to love and serve individuals who I know personally, but my daughter pointed out that the worldview was lacking in my head, and she was right. What she was able to see was the opposite of what existed in her graduate studies. A place where people espoused great love for the masses, for the worldview, and equity, and humility. In, in that reign, it was all love and, and all this, these Christian ethics, but individually treated each other like shit. In me, she, Delaney saw a man who treated individuals with love, and, and some compassion sometimes when I'm able, through Christ, but had zero compassion for the world. Both approaches are lacking. And if I'm a Christian, that should not be. I should not, I should not be possessing that. In my estimation, I'll tell you why. It's been really convenient for me to lump all racial injustice, misogyny, and the trials and mistreatment of disabled people into this distant group of, what can I do about it? There's nothing I can do about that. And justify this indifference as acceptable in my heart. See, this is the key. This is the key, you guys. What's in your heart? And I had my heart taken out on a table and revealed to me through this conversation with my daughter that when it came to general suffering, I didn't care. And while there's not much I can do personally, about world social injustice, I can do something about what lies in my heart toward it. And therefore, what comes out of my mouth about it. And this is my point for you believers out there to consider tonight. I think that in some ways, Christianity as a whole is guilty of what I am guilty of only really caring about those we know, and even that's not often the case, and not stepping up and caring from the heart for the plight of those people and cultures that we don't. This week, I had to dig deep and examine myself and discovered what I discovered was what, how I saw the world through myself. And that was, essentially, I'm a healthy white male, born of privilege, relatively speaking. I've had opportunities given to me that billions of people could only dream of. All because of either the color of their skin, cultural differences, geographical, socioeconomic differences, disabilities, gender, and or sexual preferences. That's a reality. I refuse to suggest that these obstacles are a justification for a life of failures or criminality. 
But what I learned from Delaney is that it goes a long way. This is the point for a Christian to first include, assess, and realize that people of color in this world, no matter their socioeconomic status, enter life a hundred yards behind the starting line of most whites. Just in the day-to-day of life is what I'm talking about. You get up out of bed and you walk down a city street and you're white, or you get up out of bed and you walk down a city street and you're black. And they start life off a hundred yards behind the starting line. Certainly, all human beings have obstacles and biases against them. We're bald, we're obese, we're, we dress badly, we have acne, bad teeth, we're too skinny, we're too short, we're too tall, we're male, we're female, whatever. But listen, a person of color has the added obstacle of being seen differently because of the color of their skin in addition to being bald and obese acne, bad teeth, too skinny, too uh, short, too tall, too fat, too female, whatever it is. It's in addition to the things that we deal with. Callously, I've never allowed this to enter my assessment of the people of the world. I've simply said to myself, what do they merit? What do they do? All the while ignoring the collective fact that the ability to merit in many cases, has been blocked by the color of their skin. It's true, plain and simple. We're not talking about the exceptions. I'm not talking about sports heroes, and I'm not talking about rappers who've made millions. We're talking about the general day-to-day experiences of a typical individual trying to get by. Thinking about it, knowing my personality, if I had been born black, I would be sitting here with a brick in my hand. I, 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 I love equality. I really don't like inequality on the individual level, but I haven't cared one bit about it on the collective, big level, worldwide level. Not an ounce. The heart has to change. Both both things have to be present. They have to be. God so loved the world. He gave. God created these cultures. He created these, these skin tones. And, and so it's, it's almost, it's so embarrassing. It's irresponsible that I've allowed myself to believe I was okay. I was not. I had a giant blind spot where I was unable to see how unfairly life really is for certain people groups. I know the response. I just talked about it. Life's unfair to everybody, buddy. No doubt. We've all got wounds, deep things in the depths of our souls that we're hurt over. But this does not erase the fact that if you're white, if you're male, if you're healthy, if you're heterosexual, and if you're fairly attractive, your day-to-day experience in this world is very different from a person of color, straight up. 
So I got to take that into account so I can be the best version of a Christian that's possible. That's the goal. What motivated me in my previous views wasn't hatred and it wasn't banality. Embarrassingly enough, what motivated me in my earlier view of the world was indifference. It was calloused indifference. It was myopic introspection. I have everything I need. Why should I worry or care or be concerned about anybody else? And so I wouldn't let any of the factors that other people face enter into my mind. The change I'm seeking for myself and promoting to you, sorry, I just lost my place, is not for political involvement. I'm not suggesting that at all. And I stand with the comments I made last week. It's not for joining some protest. Um, It's just for a change of heart, a change of perspective. One that sees the need for more compassion, more love, more caring for all peoples of the world, but especially the alienated, the disenfranchised, the abused, and maligned from the heart, from the heart, the attitude in the heart. That's what we're talking about. In my estimation, the complete Christian, which I have not been, is a lover of God and all people from the heart with an abiding mourning and concern for world injustice and plights. And, uh, and then, of course, the welfare of anybody who crosses your path individually. That being said, I want to echo the sentiments I shared last week that the only hope I am convinced in this world of all these pains and suffering is Jesus. It's Jesus that allowed me to hear my daughter's assessment and move some of the mercy and compassion I hope to have for individuals into a a collective sense for others and all others and to soften my hardened uh, meritorious stance. He's the great equalizer, Jesus. He is the one, his gospel, who he is, what he did is for all people everywhere. That's why Paul wrote in Galatians 3.28, there's no Jew or Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. If you are, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That one, that oneness, that unity. How could it be possible from my mind if in my heart I haven't allowed myself to see world plight with mourning and compassion and mercy? Paul adds in Colossians 3.14, And above all these put on love, listen, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That should be coming from the Christian mind first. I know I'm, I'm on a soapbox with this, but I'm convicted. And as I change, I share with you the changes that are happening. No matter what the world suggests and what it attempts, perfect harmony is only possible with agape love. And agape love is possible only in and through Christ, as far as I can see. Because that love is patient. That love is kind. That love is long-suffering. That's why James called it the royal law of love. 
and Christians refer to it as the higher law. The higher law. I can't unhear the lyrics of a U2 song, One Love, when they sing, You say love is the temple, love the higher law. Love is the temple, love the higher law. You ask me to enter, and then you make me crawl. And I can't keep holding on when all you've got is hurt. Love is the temple, and it is the higher law, and it comes with a high price to enter into that temple. And the sacrifice of the self to our prejudices and to our biases and to our hatreds and to our indifference. Because when we get rid of that stuff, everything can be bound together in perfect harmony. This love will not happen in our world. It won't happen in our flesh. But as Christians, it ought to happen for everyone everywhere, at least from our heart, at least from the heart. It wasn't there in me before. I want to cultivate that in me now. And maybe you do too. Listen, Seth, where's my device? Okay, we come to Carnine who says, how is it that members of the LDS Church believe that Joseph Smith said, even though he wrote the Book of Mormon, that his own coming to restore the church was prophesied and foretold within the first half of the Book of Mormon, I immediately thought to myself, wouldn't you think if a person writes about himself by name, of course that person is a liar and cannot be trusted? Yet millions believe that from the words Joseph got from God, uh, told of Joseph Smith. In other words, anybody who puts their name in a sacred book and says that that the gospel was going to come through them, you ought to see them as a fraud from the get-go. Interestingly enough, not everybody sees things that way. They see that as they believe that maybe God actually did call him. And they see it more in a half-full light rather than a half-empty one. Common Sense said three hours ago, keep up the good work. We need more voices of reasons in this dumb world. Yes, we do. Lori, four hours ago, said, thank you for your show. My church started holding services again a couple of weeks ago. I wasn't going to go this last weekend because of my own fears. Right before the service was to start, I got a reminder text about the service. I knew that was where I was supposed to be on Sunday morning. So along with my face mask, I went. I gave, it gave me the hope I needed to have for the day and for the week. God speaks even if it's only a text reminder. Thank you, Lori. Design Core says, I wonder where your enemies are now. I think they're hiding nice work. SB says, what do I say to a co-worker who believes in paranormal activity? She loves to mention personal experiences, TV shows, and paranatural sites she has explored. I think it's a folly, but I don't know how to bring the light in. Thanks. You know, I, I don't um, have an opinion on it. I know there's a lot of people who talk. We got somebody in the cage right to my right. She loves all that paranormal stuff. And, and uh, there, people do. I, I don't know what to say about it. What I don't do, SB, is take the hardcore Christian line that we don't look at those things. And that, that, that it's demonic and that it's evil and it's of Satan. No, I, I don't believe that. I think that you can't go wrong exploring and learning anything. 
And because if your heart is right and you're seeking truth, God will show you the way. So don't worry about uh, her folly. Love her as a Christian. Bring Jesus into the mix with you and her and, uh, you know, and see what that does. Margaret Tania, a good fan of the show. Love your show. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret. Siths says, loved it. MH says, I suggest that these ideas you presented also extend to the heavenly city where there's always light and no day or night and outside the city where it's dark and that light and dark metaphors hold there as well. Possibly that's also part of why those who remain outside the city don't come in through the open gates. And MH, I agree with you. I think we talked about that on the show, but I completely agree with you. Um, Relative to the show, a welcome break, Mark Robbins writes, how is it that the flock under the apostolic leadership is white and sinless when one of the apostles said to the flock, 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in it in us. Isn't our righteousness imputed to us by Jesus? And when we go to be with him, he will glorify us? It is. And I, to tell you the truth, I can't answer that question off the top of my head, which I'm trying to do with these to act like they're phone calls. Uh, I can't answer that question off the top of my head. I could when we studied 1 John, but my head is swimming with stuff right now. And so I couldn't give you a good answer. But if you're interested, I will try to research it and uh, get back to you next week on the show. Satan, on the Satan show, not Satan himself. Oh yeah, here's a comment from Satan. Ah! (laughs) No, uh, people of the free something said, if Satan and sin and everything was done when Jesus died on the cross, why hang around for those 40 days after he rose from the dead and then ascend promising to come back about 40 years later? Was not the battle won or not? It's a good question, and we did cover that on the show of Satan. And here it is, people of the... All I have is people of the fre. But here, here it is, people of the fre. Jesus said that the time for Satan's demise is happening now. But when, the, when Jesus and others would speak, that was saying the beginning of the end is now. So yes, Satan was truncated in his powers when Jesus died on the cross. But he still, by prophecy, was going to be uh, released after a time of peace and, and come back out after that time. And he was going to reign with blood and horror and as a roaring lion for a period of time before he was cast into the lake of fire. So even though Jesus said that at the cross, at his death, Satan's power was coming to it, was an, at an end, what it really is, is it's coming to an end. This is the beginning of the end for him. And that's why Revelation says, when he came down from heaven, Satan, when he was cast out of heaven, that the heavens rejoiced, but the earth mourned because he was going to reign terror because he knew his time was short. So I hope that helps answer that question. Uh, Earl Erskine, uh, he, from, that's from Bishop Earl's ex-Mormon files, wrote, impeccable logic. Well, thank you, Bishop Earl. Very nice of you. Vanessa Braga said, thank you for your research into this and for the simple truths. These are all under something called uh, Christian BS show. 
What scriptures in the Bible does Calvinism stand on? It's probably a bunch, huh? Still, Calvinism makes more sense. Uh, I think what they do is they pick and choose and they high grade some passages out of scripture and they ignore context, especially when it comes to Ephesians chapter one. I think they have really missed the mark on that. There are other passages that do support the five points of, of Calvinism, the tulip, but the rest of scripture in context does not, in my estimation. Daom says, that was the one who watches warlocks and things at night. Since Christ's blood atoned for sins of everyone, then everyone is saved, right? And it's, it's, it's a great question, and here's why. Saved from death? Yes, because all will have life because of him. Saved from hell? Yes. Saved to the kingdom of God? No. So they're saved from some things by virtue of his atoning blood, but they aren't saved to the kingdom of God, which is above, which is what it says in Galatians, the new Jerusalem is above. They, they aren't saved to that kingdom. They will go to the outside of that kingdom. Those in the kingdom go into it by faith on him. So understand that there's a difference. So just because he paid for the sin doesn't mean that everyone goes into the kingdom. They are not saved to the kingdom. They're saved from death, uh, sin, and hell. Just Kinsey says, the simple truth is that there is no one who was chosen and that was Jesus. There was, sorry, there is one who was chosen and that was Jesus Christ. We are only chosen in the sense that we are identified into Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The Calvinist doctrine of predestination is just a fleshly understanding of what it means to be predestined for heaven. Sad, really. I agree with Just Kinsey on that. Carneen says, great, Sean. I just got your book, Born Again Mormon. Thank you for the ministry. Thank you. Dan Rush says, Mormon, false fool, repent. I'm not a Mormon. <laughs> I'm a false fool, and I need to repent. But I'm not a Mormon, false fool, Dan Rush. And Theo Elias says, hmm, I'm a Molinist. What are your thoughts? I used to know what Molinist meant. Does anyone know? I can't remember. It's one of those theological words. I'm not smart that way. But I look it up, I do research, and I'll tell you maybe next week. And beautiful message from Welcome Break. Fish Gang TV said, do you love? And then said, an open conversation is necessary to build genuine human and earthly connection through spirit, mind, and your body, only believing in the one true king. Hear me out, part four. David Wickert wrote Nikki. <laughs> and Bobby Johnson, under the Satan show, says, I crack him up. Oh, man, thank you for answering my questions, he adds. Madison Kuhn. Madison is a really smart gal. She is a Native American and love. We we're trying to work it out where she can get on the show because she has a presentation to make about the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith and plagiarism relative to Native American history. And she talks over my head a lot of the time. Uh, but she says, and what other time in human history could this perspective have been attained less than environment as we now have and that other world 
that surrounds us. Good point. Um, love your patience, sense of humor. And then uh, Kevin Bean asks, where does the title Age of Fulfillment come from? Uh, Age of Fulfillment comes from an amalgamation of scripture from my mouth. I don't think there's a, a, a passage that talks about the age of fulfillment. Uh, there are passages that talk about fulfillment and reconciliation and ages for sure, eons and ions, but uh, I don't know about the age of fulfillment. I'm going to stop there with those. We have an off-air question from Sarah. She says, but Sean, what about the black people who claim white privilege doesn't exist? And the black people who say their race never held them back. Candace Owens, uh, Thomas Sowell, Marth, uh, Walter Williams, etc. And what I would say to that is, I, as I said in here, I'm not talking about the exceptions. And I said sports heroes and rappers. Let me also correct myself and say, and uh, uh, certain people uh, who have achieved and have believed that being black did not hinder them. There's always exceptions. But uh, I think in the, what I'm talking about in the general sense, Sarah, is that when you take the common, typical black person and you compare them to Sean McCraney, I have to have the heart that I have had far more opportunities than they have. And that's what I am talking about. Uh, Marsage says, Sean is doing exactly what he has criticized megachurch pastors for doing. He finds a message unrelated to Jesus and shapes the Bible around it. Are we talking about the message tonight? Okay, and so exactly what pastor doing, he finds a message. You are, oh, I knew this, this uh, thing tonight was going to upset people. Uh, wait, go back. Okay, exactly. He finds a message unrelated to Jesus. Well, first of all, let me explain something relative to that first comment from Marsage. This is a show. Our show, we talk about everything. On Sunday, this is not a mega church production. This is a, this is a show that once was a television show. And I talk about all things. I try to focus on Jesus. And I included the fact that it's the Christian message to love all sides, individuals and groups. But if I was a, if this was a Sunday, you could accuse me of that. But on Sunday, I don't think I talk about this stuff too much. I might do it occasionally. It's hard. Some, you know, you live in an age when things are going on. It's hard not to do it. But we try on Sunday to teach the word. So if you go through our archives, Marsage, and you watch our teachings verse by verse on Sunday, and you catch me do it, I'll take your criticism for that. I won't take it for the show. No way. And then he says. You are seriously claiming that race is a non-issue while ranting about your own race being an issue. I don't think I said that, Marsage. I think I was seriously claiming that race is an issue while ranting about my own race not being an issue. So I think you got that backward. If you re-listen to it, you might hear it. Bobby Johnson says, wow, this is ridiculous. I love you, man, but I am a heterosexual male Christian. Where is my white privilege? I grew up with an alcoholic father. I got medical issues like vitiligo and thyroid. Okay, like I said, we all have issues, Bobby. We all have vitiligo, and we have all had alcoholic... When I, I'm, I'm talking about this figuratively. We've all had the issues. 
But when, you, when, when you're talking about race, that's an additional issue that has historically been very difficult in this country, at least, and in, in South Africa, to overcome. It's an automatic thing against most black people. It's not an automatic thing against a white man, Bobby. People aren't saying there's a white man unless you're in a black neighborhood. But if you're in a city street, walking down the street, most people aren't going, uh-oh, you know, there's a white man. It doesn't happen. You know, if you're a criminal, it does. There's always exceptions. I'm just talking generally. And if you can't agree with that, it's okay. You have that right to your opinion. I think it's wrong, but I, that's how I see it. Shane Hecker says, Sean, I hear you and I love you, man. But above all, at least here in the great U.S., our situation is determined above all by our choices in life. Skin color does not make you what you are. And I agree with you. Absolutely. And that's why I said in my comments, if you go back and listen to them, this is not an excuse. This is not an excuse for failure or criminality is what I said. It's not an excuse. We all have things to face. I'm talking about a heartfelt compassion for the plight of people who have not had as a group the same opportunities as I have. Now, is there an exception to that? I think Obama has had more opportunities than I've had. I think he's had educational opportunities and things I had never had a chance at. So there's always exceptions. Stay in the general sense. The common uh, white guy like me and a common black man, I think I've had more opportunities. All because of skin. That, that, that the lack of opportunities in many ways have come uh, because of skin color. Now, in the recent past, we've had affirmative action. We've had things happen politically. I don't think that's the solution. But we've had things politically where we've tried to give black people more opportunities because of the defects we had in the past. But I'm just talking about on a day-to-day, -day, that's why I said these things, a day-to-day -day walk down the city street. If you're a black man versus a white man, there is in our country a, a greater difficulty because of that. Delaney McCraney says, grateful for this heart and for everyone behind the scenes making this production happen weekly. Thank you, Delaney McCraney, for that. Any other off-air comments or... or um, one more from someone else who is making it tough on me. Uh, XYZ account. I agree we should have compassion for all, but it's every one of you guys. I, I love this. Every one of your comments are, yes, this is a good point. However, all people automatically breaks any people groups. So someone explain that one to me. All people. Okay, so Dave just helped explain that. So if you have compassion for all people, automatically, but all people automatically breaks any people groups. So what, what XYZ is saying is that if you have compassion for all people, you don't see black, yellow, white uh, things. And I, I don't think I'm agreeing with that. I'm saying that when you say all people, you're saying all people groups because there are groups. 
We have cultures. I mean, we have, I mean, that is, I mean, it's so biblical, you can't get around it. So I'm not saying, you know, there's no difference at all between this group, that group, this group. I'm just saying I want to have compassion for all and consider their plight. And, and I don't think by having compassion for all groups, I delineate and get rid of all groups' borders. I don't think so at all. But you could argue that. Dave Corrigan, privilege belongs to the politically connected like the intelligence community. Privilege does belong. It, privilege belongs to people with money, too. And it does belong to people who are politically connected, ir irrespective of color, right? And look, we could argue it the other way, too. Uh, you know, the NBA, for instance. I don't think this is, is anything shameful. The NBA is predominantly black. Why? They're gifted in that way. Okay? So, you know, white groups could say, hey, it's not fair for the, 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 the white man doesn't have a chance to get in and play in the NBA. But it may not be as fair genetically, but it is certainly as fair in work ethic. We have people who rise above and make it into the NBA who are white. All I'm saying, you got to understand, I'm not trying to solve the world's problems here. I'm saying from a Christian perspective, I want to change my heart and I want to lead with, I want to I lead with compassion and mercy for people groups who have had it more difficult. We're talking about black people right now. What about women? I haven't cared about the plight of women. And I've got three daughters and a wife and a mom and three sisters. And I haven't cared about the plight of women. Ah, oh, come on, knock it off. You know, you can just deal with it. You can handle it. It's not true. It's not true. I have not had compassion for them. Do you know what it's like to be a woman and walk down the street? And, and I, I, I just think it's very different than to be a white male or even a black male. A woman has it differently than us males do. So compassion for her plight and, and, and understanding for her plight because it is there. Is it always there? No. Do women have some uh, 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 benefits to being women in this world? They do. But I'm just talking about trying to look at the deficits people face. And that's why with dis disabled people, I haven't. So you're in a wheelchair. Get over it. And I'll get, a, get this book of world records and find somebody in a wheelchair who did something great and say, see, they did it. You can too. It's really easy, right? It's just the compassionate heart for somebody who's, who's disabled mentally, uh, physically. The compassionate heart for different races in their plight. A compassionate heart for women. As a Christian man, that's all I'm talking about. I said, if this fits you, let it benefit you. If it doesn't fit you and you don't agree with it, fine. But it's something I felt uh, it was important to clarify and to share with you. We're out of time. We don't have any calls, and that's probably good. And uh, so we'll wrap it up and tune in with us next Monday, this coming Monday night, as we do another episode here on Heart of the Matter.